which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Be seated this morning and open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We're going through the book of Ruth. It's an Old Testament book. You'll find that in the Old Testament. And uh, it is a story that happened about a thousand years ago. And I'm going to keep on saying that it's a story, but realize that when I say it's a story, this is not a fictional story. This is a real story. This is something that really happened. These are real people that we can trace back. And God begins to do a marvelous, marvelous work and uses them and this family and, and just an integral way in the New Testament. And we'll see that by the time we get to chapter 4. But when we left last week, we left really kind of uh, what I would say was on a downer. We, we saw this family, and I, I realized that and everybody was here last week. You may be unfamiliar with the book of Ruth, so I'm going to tell that story again in just a second, just very uh, uh, in, in a very kind of Cliff Notes version so that you can kind of catch up with us a little bit. Uh, but before we get there, because I had to leave us at such a downer last week, and it was just one of those places no pastor wants people going out in a time when the story just fell apart, and it's just dark. And yet, that's where chapter 1 ends, and then we didn't end there just because that's where chapter 1 ends. But I, I told a couple of people afterwards, they had made some comments, uh, very positive comments, and uh, just the harshness of that story of Ruth. And, and I said, you know, I, I wanted to tell the rest part that things start to get a little bit better, but I said, you know, sometimes, guys, in reality, we need to linger in those times and see that there are times and seasons in our lives when it seems like there's just not a lot of hope. Because here's the thing. Here's the, here's the trick that the world has kind of put upon us, especially through television, is that everything is solved in 30 minutes. You know, you have dilemmas and you have life situations, and in 30 minutes you go from... And it started all the way back with the cleavers, okay? You know, beaver cleaver and all those, for those that are old enough to remember them, you know, you had a dilemma, and it's usually always the beaver's fault. But by the end of the story, you know, there, there was redemption. And whether it was the Brady Bunch or the Partridge family and go through the seasons and to the most current of TV shows, you had dilemma, you had times of hopelessness, and in 30 minutes there was hope again. I don't know that I've seen that reflected in real life as I've dealt with people and ministered to people that in 30 minutes everything could kind of be summed up. Now, sometimes there's weeks and sometimes there's months. Uh, Sometimes there's years, guys, when there's just a heaviness and there's a a time in your life when it's just kind of dark and you begin to lose hope. Because that's where we left Naomi last week because she just lost hope. Remember her name? Did anybody remember what her name Naomi meant? Yeah, happy and pleasant. And she says, she comes back into town, and we'll tell the rest of the story to catch everybody. But she, she said, now you can call me Mara. Because what did that mean? Bitter. She's I'm not the happy person I was before. How many of you uh, consider yourself a theologian? Raise your hand. How many of you consider yourselves a philosopher? Nobody at all. Okay, Here, here's how I'm going to help you out this morning. Everybody in here is a theologian. I promise you. You may not be an experienced one. You certainly may not be a paid one, a trained one, a this and there. Everybody has a theology of how we do life. You have some, even if you say, I don't believe that there is a God, you have a theology about a God. You just said, I don't consider that there is one. 
you may not consider yourself very philosophical. Maybe you say, no, I'm just kind of simple-minded. I just kind of take life as it comes. No, I promise you, every one of us, especially in dark days, we have a philosophy of life. There's a time that we're going to come and we're going to make, especially in the darkest days. In the bright days, we just kind of enjoy the brightness of the day. But in the dark days, in the hopeless days, we really become theologians, we become philosophers, whether we call it that or not, because we're confronted when all of a sudden life has turns and it has directions and we have to make choices. We begin to say, okay, why do things happen? Can, can we go to that next slide? Uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, well, man, it's just destiny. In other words, it is kind of already prescribed, and there's just nothing you can do about it. This is your hand, and it's going to play out a card at a time. Other people would say, well, fate. You know, I believe in fate, and that whatever's out there, it's going to happen. It's kind of like destiny, but it's kind of a version that's even maybe a little bit more loose than that. Other people believe in luck. Man, you were sure lucky. Man, we were lucky that we did. Guys, I, I don't. I personally do not believe in, in, in the most categorical sense, uh, destiny, fate, and luck. I don't think they align up with biblical principles. I don't think that they align up with a sovereign God. But I promise you that as life hits you and delivers some blows, there's going to be times you're going to man, that wasn't lucky. Or I guess this was just my fate. I wonder if that's what Naomi and her family, as they kind of came upon that place where they kind of said, okay, I guess this is just the cards that were dealt and I have to deal with them. See, I believe that everybody in some sense is a theologian, whether you would be a trained one or not, because I think somewhere in those darkest of days, in those most challenging days, when we come into a place where we don't know which way to go, left or right, do we even stop, do we retreat, do we even go forward, I believe that somewhere we will answer within our hearts and our minds the reason to go on to the next day. If you haven't been at that place, that dark place in your life, there will be a day that I promise you, they're not happy times, but I promise you, you'll have to confront that. When you can't see the good, you can't see an opening, you can't see the light for the darkness, and you'll have to say, okay, what do I believe? What do I really believe? Do I believe that just as fate and there's nothing I can do about it, it's going to happen? Or do I believe that there's this creator God who not only is sovereign and is over all things, as the Bible says, but not only do I believe that, but I believe that he's a personal God and that he sent his son Jesus for me in a personal way so that we can have personal relationship. See, no matter how dark the night gets at that point then, it changes everything because there's a hope, not so much for that day and that the circumstances are already in the midst of changing, but there's a hope that, God, you have not abandoned me. You have not left me. You know me. And even in this darkness, you are here. We just sang about that this morning. Whom shall I fear? I mean, you go back to that story in the Old Testament and the guy looks out and it looks like there's an army that's come against him. He's all by himself. And then God reveals to him through a vision no, I'm standing right behind, beside you and, and I put a whole angel army beside you. So that's what we need sometimes in the darkness. Because it does seem like it's us against the rest of the world and that there truly is this battlefront coming and that there really is this attack coming on. Sometimes it's spiritual in nature. Sometimes it's physical in nature. Sometimes it's relationship and you know, family oriented. Sometimes it's emotional. Guys, it it, it hits us, and at those times, you are going to become somewhat of a philosopher and somewhat of a theologian, and that you're going to say to yourself, whether you say it in in these words or not, 
man, where do I go from here? What do I really believe about life? Last week, let me summarize the story of Ruth chapter 1. We have a family, and they live in Bethlehem. And we said, ironically, Bethlehem means the house of bread, and yet there was a famine in the land. And we're not told why, just that there was a famine. So they decide to go to this land where really in the Old Testament they were instructed not to go and really not participate with these people because they were not God-fearers and they didn't worship God. And, uh, so, but they went to Moab because they heard that there was food there. So they go there. This man leaves uh, Elimelech. He, he goes and he takes his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and he moves there. And we're not told exactly when, but he dies. So all of a sudden we have a widow with two sons. Well, they marry, and uh, I think for about 10 years, at least one is married, and so they're, they're there in Moab for a while, and then both of those sons die. And so you're left with Naomi and, and, and two daughters-in-law. Well, they hear that the famine is over in Bethlehem, and the whole reason for leaving in the first place is they were hungry and they wanted food, and so they went to a land where they heard that there was food, and so they... Naomi decides to go back to her homeland. And she goes to her daughters-in-law and she said, look, that would be a foreign land to you. You're not going to have family there. Your people are not there. And so you need to stay here because, you know, really this is where, if if you're going to marry again, this is where you would marry again. I can't marry again and, you know, and have sons where you can marry them. So there's just really no hope for you back in Bethlehem. And one of those daughter-in-laws, Orpah, said, you know, that makes sense. And, and, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go back to my own family. But there was another character in this. Again, true story. Her name is Ruth, and, and she says that famous line that we use now in weddings because it's so poetic, and it's so beautiful, and it's so kind of romantic. And yet, I promise you, the romance when she said this, was not in a wedding setting. The romance was the beauty that she had become a believer in this God. It's found in verse 16 and 17. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, remember we said it's capitalized there. That's the personal name of God. She's personalized and she has a relationship with this God now. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. No, I mean, I appreciate you just want the best for me. But I'm saying the best for me is to follow you. Because the belief that you have, even during this dark season of your life, is I'm going to go back there. So they come back. And that's when we see, you know, Naomi say, look, when they come back to Bethlehem, uh, the, the ladies begin to talk. And they said, is this even Naomi? She doesn't look the same. It had been many years, and so she had aged. And yet, the heaviness of life had aged her a lot. I don't mean this in a critical way whatsoever, but have you ever not seen somebody for five, six, seven, eight years, and you had heard that they really had a hard, maybe a dark period of their life, and they come back, and you're going, that was not even the same person. Because it just wore on them physically. And that's what happened here. And that's when she says, you know, my name is not, no longer happy. My, my name is, is actually bitter. But I want you to notice something in the very, very last part of that. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Okay, theologically speaking, does she believe in God by that statement? Yes. She's a theologian. She may not be a trained, she doesn't have a seminary degree, this, that, and the other, but, but she's a theologian, and so are you. Okay? You have some basis. Do I believe in this God? And here she says, For the Almighty has dealt with, uh, very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord, little letters or capital letters? Capital, personal name of God. This God that she knows personally. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, this personal God that I know, has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We have to be very careful here. She is not saying so much that God is the, the cause of all of this, but certainly that God has allowed all of this. That he's allowed this calamity to come upon her. See, here's, you know, I always say I don't like bumper sticker theology because it's very hard to kind of wrap up sometimes good theology in, in five or six words to put on your bumper sticker. Sometimes it's quite simplistic. And guys, if there's one thing that I always want to be with you, and that is real, I want to always share with you the hope of Christ, the hope of Christ, the hope of Christ. But we have to be real. Why? Because we are philosophers. We are thinkers. Years ago, there was a hurricane back in in the 90s, and there was this miraculous story in this particular hurricane that that hit down in Louisiana. And and afterwards, they go out after all the devastation, and there were so many people that perished in that. I mean, I think maybe as many as 20 people had perished in that. And yet, in the story, the next day, they show this tree. And in that tree, a little baby wrapped up was actually found in that tree. The wind had blown that baby, and that baby had actually landed in that tree. And people were going, man, look at the grace of God. Look at the miraculous work of God. And, And I believe that that was the miraculous grace and work of God. Okay, don't don't get me wrong there. But what if you're the husband or the wife, the mother or the daughter, the parents of one of the 20 that did die? Guys, we can't just take the good and say, okay, God, that is you, and take the bad and say, okay, that's just evil. I mean, it is evil, it's sin, and it's not that God is causing it. But, but this same God, if he really is a sovereign God, if he truly is over all things and has all knowledge, do you see what I mean? We can't separate that. Let's not play. If we're going to be truthful about it, that's why I don't like bumper sticker theology because just say, okay, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. That is true. At the same time, if I just go up there and try to say that to somebody who just lost their spouse, their mom or their dad through the tragedy of circumstances or through cancer or through this that, and the other, do they believe that God is good and God is good all the time? Yes. Do they really, are they really in a season of life in that particular moment where that is a fresh aroma to their mind and heart or does it sting like salt in a wound? We are theologians. We, we are philosophers, guys. In real life, you will answer those questions of why. Why me? Why this? Why now? And we don't ask so many why questions in the bright sunshine of day and surplus and plenty. But we ask those questions a lot in the darkness, in the what seems to be hopelessness of, of night. And that's where Naomi is. She's just being real. 
She is not cursing God. She is re- she's actually respecting God. She's just saying, man, in my life right now, I am not happy anymore. I, I'm bitter. Life, is, life has been hard. I've lost my husband, and I have lost my two sons, and I'm not in a good place right now. And, and the fact is, I've lost hope. I, I don't see where this is really going to change. Chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of um, Emelech, whose name was Boaz. We're introduced to this new character, Boaz, and we're not going to really know a lot about him until a little bit later on. And, uh, but we find out some important information. Number one, he's a good man, a godly man, a man that fears God. And we find out that he is a man who's connected relationally through through. Um, to, to Boaz, her, her former husband, the, the husband who had passed. These are important parts of information. We'll try to make a disconnect just for a second there between verse 1 and verse 2, because then we start another kind of part of the story that we begin to fill in. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears, uh, among the ears uh, of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Let me explain to you, back in the days, gleaning what that was. In the old days, in the Old Testament, they had been commanded uh, by law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and several other places. You know, you always say, okay, what good is there in Leviticus? (laughs) What good is there in some of these books? Well, they were given laws, and some of these were just laws how to do life. And one of those laws in Leviticus talked about if you're a farmer how you would allow people to come in and glean, that is, have some of your surplus. Can you uh, read that for me? This is from Leviticus. And stand and read it real loud for us, okay? Okay. He says, okay, this is my commandment. This is from God. This isn't from the sheriff. This isn't from the governor or the mayor. This is somebody who says, okay, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. There's always going to be some people that that are maybe a little bit poor and and they just have need. Sometimes that word sojourner is the same word that we would use of somebody who's a foreigner or an alien, somebody who's not from that country. And so he says, here's here's my plan to help the need. When you're a farmer, maybe you would do like 90% of your crop and you take that, but leave 10%. Don't take it all. Leave 10%. And then those people that have need can come in and they can gather up that 10%. It's called gleaning. This is part of the Old Testament uh, uh, mindset that God instilled. This wasn't in every country, but it was in Israel because God had ordained that and, and he had told that. Well, Ruth finds out about that, and she says, okay, we're hungry. <laughs> we're back here in the, the house of plenty, and there is kind of food out there, but we don't have jobs, and, and, and we can't go to the market and get some. So I will go out, Naomi, and, and I will glean from the fields. And, and she prays there. I want you to notice what she says. Now, I hope that somebody will bless me this day with this. I'm just trusting that God somehow is going to work out that I go to the right place and all that. Well, she comes out. And look what happens there in verse 4. And behold, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. 
So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. We were already told that in verse 1. See those words, and she happened to come? Hebrew writing, they were great writers, and they would do play on words. And so a lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll see a play of contrast. One of their favorites is to play a contrast. Other times they would use a, a double um, emphasis, and, and that's what they do here. If you read this literally from the Hebrew, it said, and it happened to happen because it happened. It's kind of like they use that word over and over again. And here's the point that I was making, is that this was not by chance. This was not luck, and this was not just fate. She walks down, and she tries to find a field, and all the farmers would have been participating in this. All the, the Jewish farmers would have been participating. I don't know if she went to the very first one. I don't know if she passed three and stopped at the fourth one. All I know is that at the end of the day, she went to the one, and it just happened to be owned by Boaz, who just happened to be part of Elimelech's family. It's going to play a really, really important part. And we look at it as Christians. And we look at it after, afterwards and we say, this was not happenstance. This wasn't just coincidence. This wasn't just fate. This wasn't just, well, man, lucky you. She had prayed that morning, God, will you send me to the right field? Will you just send me to the place I need to be where, where I can be blessed, where I can find the food and be blessed? And God answers that prayer. And she goes to this one owned by Boaz. And look what it says in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And right away we see that this guy is kind of the real deal. He really does walk with God. And he just so happens to come by that day. Now, not every farmer visited all their fields every single day. So number one, she just happens to go to the right field. Number two, Boaz, kind of the big man, just happens to come out that day, takes notice of her, and look what happens in verse 5 and 6. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's a young Moabite woman. She came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now, how is she identified there? What is the, the, the leading identifier of Ruth? Okay, and which means what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's from a land where they worship other gods. She's a foreigner. She does, she's not from around here. Okay, if you're from the south, that's how they say it. When we served at First Baptist Bainbridge years and years ago, uh, I wanted to be part of the, the, they have the golf club there. And uh, they said, oh, we let pastors and, and people come in, you know, pastors to come in without the initiation cost and everything. I said, really, man, that is very gracious. That's, that's wonderful. They said, because y'all don't stay very long. <laughs> I said, okay, now I know the rest of the story. And we found out real fast in Bainbridge, a wonderful town. If anybody's from South Georgia, you'll get this. Unless you could trace your personal family history back before the Civil War, you were visiting. You weren't from around there. Nice people, but they reminded you very quickly. We're from around here. You're not. In a way, this is her identifier. 
She's a foreigner. She's an alien. She's one that comes from a place where they do not worship this God. And yet Boaz does not take offense at this. He he does not stand back at this. But this is her identity. And and look what happens there in verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather uh, among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from the early morning until now, except for a short rest. This guy's reporting said, okay, she came this morning and she actually asked. It is law. It is a Levitical law that you're allowed to do this. You don't have to ask permission. You can just kind of take your sack and start putting, you know, the wheat in there and you can take it. You don't have to ask. But she asked. She's a very kind person. And another thing that we notice is she is a hard worker. She, she took like a little break for just a little bit this morning, but she has been working all day long. Well, Boaz takes that, and look what he says in verse 8 to 9. Though Boaz said to Ruth, he actually goes and he begins to talk to her. And that would have been very unusual. Number one, for a male to talk to a female in public. Number one, for a Jewish person to talk to, to a non-Jew in person. There's just a lot of lines that he crosses here in grace and love. A time when she's kind of feeling, could very much feel like the outsider. Boaz kind of crosses over a lot of these imaginary lines or these cultural lines. And he actually talks to her. And look what he says, verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, what? Wow. Okay, you're not from around here. Your people don't even worship the God that we worship. Are you feeling pretty much like an outsider? I mean, Naomi's not even there. Her one comfort, her own, the one person that she knows is back at the house. So she's by herself. Have you ever been there before? All by yourself and you did not know a soul? And I know some of you are extroverts and you walk into a room and five minutes later you know everybody and their family history. Right, Tracy? (laughs) And they're coming over and Radley's cooking supper for them. I mean, there are some people that we just know... But have you ever been that introvert? Or have you ever been that person that you walked into a situation you don't know anybody? The cultural norms are different. And you're just, you know, you, you got to do it. It's the school you go to. It's the job that you have to go to or whatever. But you don't have comfort. And you just wish that one person, one person. After my parents' divorce, I, I was in five schools in six years in my first years. After that, I, we pretty much settled down but five different schools in the first six years of my education. And I can tell you guys, I can tell you those days that you just went, somebody would come over to your table and sit and eat lunch. And here she is. She's a foreigner in this land. She's, you know, desperate. And look what Boaz does. No one because he's a godly man, but, but again, all this is providential. We're going to see that all of this is orchestrated by God showing amazing grace and love. Verse 8, then Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Uh, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Guys, he just extended her everything but, you know, giving her a check worth a million dollars. 
So look, there's a lot of different fields that you can go to, but I, I know this is a dangerous world. And come back here because there's safety, and I know you, my daughter. And, and I've hang out. You don't have to be on the outside. Actually, start reaping where the ladies that are working for me. Uh, ladies, please don't take offense when he said my women. It's, it's the cultural standards of the day and the way that it, it was kind of established there. He's not meaning that in some kind of a sexist way. But he says, okay, well, you, you can become part of them. You can go and have some more of the first fruits and not just reaping from the outside. And, and because it's a dangerous land, because you're from another place and it would be easy for guys to take advantage of you, I'm going to make sure that my young men are watching out for you and kind of serve as protection. You've got about 20 big brothers back here now. And if you get thirsty, see all the water that we've drawn for ourselves and, and for my crew that's working the fields, go over there and you take a drink. Because I don't know if anybody has ever extended that kind of love to you, but we can t- talk theology and spirituality all day long in the four walls of the church. There's hungry people out there that are truly hungry spiritually, mentally, uh, relationally, physically. And when you go out with like I serve and different things like that and you're just extending the hand of grace and, and, a, and a cup of cold water, it's amazing how that can be just broadcast, how that can be the very thing that God uses to bless a family. To say that, you know, maybe there really is a God. I mean, this God really does care about me. That's what he does. He just extends kindness in a physical way, in an emotional way, in a relational way. In so many different ways, this outsider becomes an insider because of the way that he says. He says, look, keep coming to my fields. It's so great to come here. Uh, Be part of kind of my group. You can even have some of the first fruits over here. My men, they're going to protect you. And that water, you can drink as much of that water as you want. That outsider was just brought in. Look to the reaction in verse 10. Ruth replies, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am what? What is her identity kind of still in her mind? Because look, this is like breaking all the rules. Now, it'd be really easy sometimes for us guys to say, Well, Boaz, he thought she was cute. You know, do you like me? Yes or no? We're not told this is a love story. It really is a love story, but it's a different kind of love story. And nowhere do we find here that there was a physical attraction. It does not say, and Ruth was a knockout. And all the guys were very much attracted to her. And you say, well, the Bible wouldn't say that anyway. It says it about other ladies. There's other, you go back, Abraham and Sarah. See what the Bible says about Sarah. She's good looking. You go back and see what it says about some different ladies. Because that's part of the story and that was part of the attraction. Here, we don't have that. And so are we to romanticize that and say, well, you know, I think Boaz kind of fell in love. I don't think so. We can't draw that conclusion. I'm not saying that Ruth wasn't pretty. I'm not saying that, that Boaz was not 
you know, looking for Miss Boaz. I don't know all the circumstances. We're just never told that because it's not a point of the story. He extends this for one reason, because of God's grace and God working in his life. Very important for us to understand that if we're going to see this as a love story, it is a different kind of love story, not filled with the romanticism that we have. And so even in chapter 1, it says, okay, my people are going to be your people. Man, that's really cute and really nice and really wonderful at a wedding. Very romantic. And yet that was not the original context. She was making a proclamation both to Naomi and to a a new God that she was just kind of pledging her allegiance to. It really wasn't romantic. This woman of no standing all of a sudden, of no position, meets this man who has high standing and high position. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, so the story must have come back, that she was helping out Naomi. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward is given to you by the Lord, remember, capital letters, personal name of God, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Should that not be part of the mission of the church, guys? Do we not say, serve a God that in the people that are in crisis, like that, that they would find a God under whose wing they could take refuge? I'm not talking about a social gospel that we just go out there and you know, that we equivalent that just doing this nice, kind act is always salvation. It's not salvation, but it sure is showing a representation of the kind of heart and, and, and love that our God has. And so when we're showing kindness and we're showing grace and we're bringing outsiders in, it is part of the gospel. And it's not the saving part of the gospel, but it's part of the message of the gospel that the gospel is for all. And that's what happens here. A thousand years before Christ even walks this earth, we see Boaz extending this kind of grace to Ruth. He says, may God bless you in this. Verse 15 and 16. I'm sorry, let's go back up to um, verse 13. Uh, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servants, though I am not one of your servants. And then she goes on, look at verse 14. Or, uh, the story goes on. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and, and dip your, your morsel in the wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed to, to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was... What? How, how long do you think it had been since that she had eaten until she was satisfied? Really cool story here, guys. And she had some left over. Isn't that just God? But but I don't want you to miss an important point here. Are y'all allowed to double dip in your family? Other people that you're not allowed to double dip in your family, even though it's family members, raise your hand. Okay, just remember when you're over at these people's house and you're having nachos and they put cheese out there or salsa, don't double dip. Okay, dip once, eat, 
and, and then don't dip again, okay? <laughs> do, you notice, do you notice what happens here? He not only extends and he gives her some bread, not, not just the grain, but the bread, and, and then they're dipping the wine. Do you think that he's just said, okay, only one? And then she, I, I don't know. There may have been some double dipping that went on. I I just, this is grace, guys. This is, this is family. This is community. I'm not trying to be silly with this point. I'm just saying, guys, you don't, there's a lot of people you may double dip with. But sometimes if it's just, you know, even at church next Sunday, I guarantee you, if you see double, uh, Dustin double dipping, you might go, okay, I'm done. You can have the rest of the, you know, the, the sauce there. Because I saw Dustin eat, and then he went back down. I, I hope I'm not making too much of a little thing, but I think it's a big thing. Because I think all these intimacies are things that God is drawing from the outside. He's drawing somebody who felt like they were an outsider, and yet they trusted God. And this was all brand new to them, and, and they were brought on the inside. Because if you've been blessed to grow up in church, do not take that for granted. But please understand that not everybody had that blessing in life. And there's a lot of people that feel like they are outsiders even to the house of God. And even to to come to church this morning, that they may feel like an outsider. What do I wear? What do I do? When are we supposed to stand? When do we sit? And they just don't understand, and it's intimidating. And we take it for granted. No, ours is the job of taking outsiders, and like Christ did to us, and we bring them inside. And we're going double dip if you want to. Because you're family. And you belong here. Don't miss the intimacies of this beautiful story. Could he have made her feel like a beggar? Worst thing in the world that we can ever do with charity, guys, is make somebody who needs to feel like a beggar. It's the worst thing in the world. It is actually an act of pride and an act of superiority that we should never own. No, we're to be gracious and we're to bring outsiders in. And we were to let them eat until they are satisfied and then have some leftovers. Well, let's get to the rest of the story here. She comes back and she's excited. Naomi goes, kind of, how was your day? And imagine, because my wife is, and I say this in total love, so anything that follows that statement right there is a dangerous statement, right? But, I, you know, I've learned just go movies with her because if she tells me the movie afterwards, that hour and a half movie turns into a three-hour movie of all the details because she's so detail-oriented, and I love that about her. Do you imagine when Ruth came back to Naomi that she said, oh, it was a pretty good day? I mean, think about it. Do you think that in the intimacy of what happened that day, that she went blow by blow, detail by detail? She goes, and then he asked me to come over. And I even double dipped one time. I think she told Naomi, her mother-in-law, every single detail that had happened that day. Verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed, that is Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, 
This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, you may not be the theologian that can say, okay, exactly what is this kinsman redeemer thing? We're going to get into that in the next two weeks. But guys, this one who said, call me Mara because I am now bitter, she has hope. Because of the kindness that was extended through this ministry of Boaz, because of somebody just being godly and sharing the grace that had been given to them, now this lady who has not seen hope in a long time begins to have hope. Plus, Ruth did bring, I mean, it actually says this in the Bible, she brought home some of the, the leftover food and said, hey, here's some of the food, you know, eat this. And, and by the way, the average thing that, you know, uh, uh, they, they say back in those days about a pound and a half of kind of the, uh, what you would glean is what you need it for daily substance as far as to, to, to make enough to eat. And on that particular day, she had like, uh, Ruth was able to gather 25 times more than what most people would need in one day. In other words, what we see here, by every little detail that we don't have even time to go into, every little detail is overabundance, 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 the kindness and the grace of God just covering up for the need that is there and not just meeting the need, but doing something that was over and beyond to show his kindness and his goodness. Do you like stopping here? I mean, this is the end of chapter two. Do you like stopping here rather than last week? I mean, honestly, do you, do you like where the story is going today as opposed to where it was going last week? Here's the reality. Same God. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Same God, guys. Same God. And yet some of us are in chapter 1 right now and some of us are in chapter 2. Some of us are at the point where, man, it's, I look around my life and I feel like an outsider, Bobby. I really do. I feel that way in my own family. I feel that way in my own job. I feel that way in my own church, Bobby. I feel like an outsider. It's the same God, guys. We can't bumper sticker this. It's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit bigger than a bumper sticker to just say that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. It's true. It's not that that's false. But I promise you, when you're in chapter one of your life, it's just salt in the wounds. By the end of chapter two, you're going to see, I told you God was going to show up. And that's why we have to be so just kind and, and grace. And sometimes we just need to, like Boaz, we just kind of see the situation and we extend kindness. And when they identify themselves as a foreigner saying, come here, my daughter, and we change the, the, the verbiage and we change the roles, and we said, this isn't who you are, this is who you are. And if there should ever be a place on planet Earth where this is true, it should be the body of Christ. Amen? If there's ever a place where outsiders would feel like they have been brought to the inside by the grace of God, it should be the body of Christ. This is part of our mission, guys. It's part of who we are. It's part of the providence of God where years ago, and I have still not found out, nobody's been able to tell me the exact starting year of Romans Road Baptist Church. Uh, we can't find, I can't find it in the history or anything. But, but when it did start, before it was cornerstone, providence of God with a mission that those people that gathered here on that first Sunday as they constituted, as they became a church, hey, there's a lot of people in this community that feel like outsiders. 
to the to the very purposes of God and the very will of God and to the love of God. And and here's your here's your call. Here's your marching orders. You bring those people in so that they feel those ones that feel like foreigners to God. You bring them in, and you see that they are daughters and sons of the living God. And God has blessed us in these years now that we're cool cornerstone, and He's blessed us with this. Uh, congregation and, and our mission hasn't changed the call of God has not changed in our lives it's not to grow to a certain number it's not to do this it's not to do that it's not to necessarily build buildings our mission is the same guys there's a lot of people that feel outside of a walk with God and our mission is the same and, hey here's the intimacies here's where I found bread and would you, you want some of my bread and go ahead double dip because we're family and that's just what we do this is the grace of God. It is not luck. It is not fate. It is not the alignment of the stars. There's a sovereign, providential God who knows all things, who is all-powerful. And in that all-knowing and in that all-power, he loved you and I enough that he would send his own son to die in our place for our sin so that we would become from foreigners to, to family members. And this is the hope of the gospel. Whether you are in chapter one of your life or you're in chapter two of your life, this is the hope of the gospel. Whether you are happy in Naomi or you are bitter in Mara right now, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the God that we serve. It is not luck. It is not fate. It is the sovereign hand of a merciful, loving, grace-giving God. And you and I are the extensions of that to show this community what that looks like. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. For Father, without your grace, I would be foreign to any belief of the truth of the gospel, Father. Without men and women that you placed in my life, Father, that showed me as a a six-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, Father, what it meant that you were this God that loves and sent his son. Father, I would not know that save your grace. And Father, I have been that child just hoping somebody would come sit at the table. So Father, now that you've brought us to this table, let us never ever, ever exclude anybody, Father, from an invitation of coming and knowing you as the God that you are. Father, I pray for the ones that are in chapter one in their lives right now. That their name really could be Mara this morning. Father, there's just a hardness. There's a a hopelessness. There's a heaviness and maybe even a bitterness in their heart and their life today. And maybe even people have told them, man, you're the unluckiest person I know. Father, let them know this morning that it has nothing to do with luck or fate or destiny. That you are a sovereign, living, holy God, creator of all things. And you know the pain that they're going through. And you have an answer of hope. And you gave it to us 2,000 years ago. And you brought us to the table. And you fed us till we were satisfied. And help us now to extend that grace and that love 
to those that we know. Father, I pray for the people that are this morning that are in chapter 1 and they've lost hope. Father, will you give them a little bit of chapter 2 into their personal life? Will you bring a Boaz into their life this week? Will you bring somebody to their table to invite them to come over so that they don't feel like a foreigner, but they feel like a family member? This is our hope, Father, and we thank you. This is our call, and we thank you for that. Help us now to go live it, Father, as we pray all these things in the blessed hope of Christ, our Redeemer, the ultimate kinsman Redeemer, today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.